Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction and fantasy and how those things relate to science, history, philosophy, other humanities, whatever you want, really. This is episode 45, Eat, Pray, and Live Deliciously. We are talking about The Witch, a movie from 2015. (laughs) I'm your host, Michael Wojcik, and the two people who are giggling in the background are... Marie Godbrack and Corey. My loyal co-hosts who've mm-hmm. been with me on this podcast for a very long time. And people have been trying to get me to watch this movie for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Five years, in fact. Mm-hmm. Which was funny because we watched it within about a week of you recommending it. Yeah. You guys were just <laughs> waiting for me to give the go-ahead that this was a historically sound film, apparently. <laughs> it, it was more I wasn't aware of its existence and just hadn't watched a movie in a while. And so when you recommended it, it's like, oh, sure, let's check it out. We are once again on the cutting edge of media that came out at least half a decade ago. I am not surprised Corey never heard of it because this is at least technically a Canadian movie. And even though we live in Canada, when these things get released, we often don't see them. We might possibly hear about them if you listen to CBC Radio, but we definitely can't see them. See our episode on Brown Girl in the Ring for more. Yeah. I think I do remember seeing a poster, potentially a trailer for this on YouTube that I promptly skipped because who wants to watch a YouTube ad? Um, I do like It wasn't the first time I'd heard of it. I was just like, yeah, some horror film. Moving on. Yeah, I, I will clarify, like, watching it, parts of it looked slightly familiar. I'm like, oh, I think I did see a trailer for this, but I'm not a big horror aficionado, so I never really kind of looked into it any further. Meanwhile, people have been badgering me about this film since it came out, saying, this movie, this movie was made for you, Michael. Uh, I saw it this week because it is super easy to access now, unlike in 2015 when this movie came out and... Me living in the Yukon, definitely none of the theaters here were going to carry a Canadian movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even down south, not that easy to get to. But now it's on like every streaming platform in 2020. Including CBC Gem. <laughs> yeah, Which as Canadians, we can access for free. <laughs> it's also a garbage platform. But anyway... <laughs> Yes, but because this is technically a Canadian movie, you can watch it on CBC Gem. It was on 2B TV as of the recording of this and a bunch of other places. A list too long to get out of the way here. It was directed by Robert Eggers, not a Canadian. The stars of this movie are not Canadians. It was filmed in Ontario. Yeah. Why were people badgering me about this film? Because in 2012, 2013, I did a master's degree in history, and my final project was on witchcraft trials in England and Poland-Lithuania. This movie is about witchcraft. Not trials, per se, but definitely about witchcraft. <laughs> it features features it heavily, you could even say. Yeah. yeah, and I um, might note we just recorded our last episode on The Witcher, so it's just you know happened to be 
<laughs> that we are now recording a podcast on The Wish. Yeah. And I should say, I mean, this movie is as much a Canadian movie as, like, The Thing is a Canadian movie because they filmed in PC. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really count it as a Canadian film at all. Beyond most of the funding coming from Canada. Oh, okay. Well, actually, made. funding does matter yeah. because this was one of those films that when we started, I was like, I recognize none of these production companies and there are a lot of them. So, Yeah, this film would not have been made if it wasn't filmed in Ontario and took advantage of all of the arts grants yeah. and stuff here. Yeah, yeah you know, I, arts funding in general is kind of weird in Canada, especially where something like film is concerned. Um, simply put, we don't have a film industry on anything near the scale of the United States. And because they're our closest neighbor, we just get most of our movies from them. Yeah, Which is kind of a shame because there are good movies made in Canada. We just never hear about them because they've got like no advertising budget. Uh, well, see our Canadian podcast for our actual um, okay. takes on that. There are theoretically good movies made in Canada. We've just never heard of them. It, it, maybe. It's possible. <laughs> anyway, that's not what this podcast is about. No, this is about the movie itself as a narrative and not how it relates to the Canadian arts industry, which would be a whole podcast in of itself that we're not particularly interested in. So everyone who said this movie was made for me, you are right. I watched this last week. I'm probably going to watch this annually now. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Good movie. It's definitely my kind of film. After grad school, I wrote a short story that was never published that basically tried to do what this film did. This film did it better, so that story's going permanently in the trunk now. We're not bothering trying to get that one out anymore. And I would like to know your initial impressions because I think it was 10 minutes into this film and I already knew, oh yeah, uh, this has got me. This is probably going to be one of my favorite films now, so... Yeah. Well, I mean, initially, I mean, the very first scenes are different from the rest of the movie. But um, I was like, oh, that's some good costuming. <laughs> that's some good sets. So I was like, it looks it looks good for the time period. So it, I was like, excellent. And then as, as, as we were going through, I was like, oh, the, se the kind of, it's not sepia, but it's a desaturated tone. And I was like... Also the language, also a lot of things. I was just, within it, I was like, yes, I think this will be a good one. And then it was. Yeah, no, my my, like, in, my immediate impressions within like the first, say, 10 minutes of the film, um, you could tell it was well made. You could tell it was well acted. You could tell the people involved took the time to craft a movie that was worth watching. Um, I will say one of my initial impressions of one of the characters actually proved to be wrong, um, but in a way that arguably worked better for the story. So I was okay with that. And uh, what's his what's his name's voice? The guy who plays the dad. I was like, oh, that's a wonderful bass voice. Yeah, no, oh. I, I could not understand half of what he was saying. And you know what? It's better that way. <laughs> I have not looked up the name of the actor, but I kind of hope he also sings because he has an amazing voice. His name is Ralph Innocent, and then the lead is played by Anya Taylor Joy. So you two had only really seen clips or some advertising of this. There was a lot of discussion of this that I was aware of in 2015. I just had no way to see it 
at the time, but just about all of the discussion was centered on this as a horror movie. That's not what this podcast is going to be about, because we're going to be talking about The Witch as a period piece. Yeah! Which I think it is far more successful as than as a horror movie, per se. I mean, it is full of tension, deeply disturbing, but I think a 14-year-old could watch this and not come away being particularly bent out of shape. (laughs) I, I just, I think it's worth pointing out, most horror, especially as presented in film, doesn't rely on legitimate fear. It relies on being startling, not scary. Um... I know this is not the focus of the conversation, but I will say I think this is amazingly successful as a horror film. Because even if you're not necessarily scared as an audience member, fear is a very real aspect of what happens to the characters. And it tells the story in such a way where you do buy into the rules of this universe and you do appreciate that what is happening to these characters represents a much greater fear for them than something as simple as living or dying. Like the stakes are very real and they do matter. It's worth spending a little bit of time just talking about the horror part of it at the beginning. I'd agree with you that it's not the scariest movie I have ever seen. I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was scared at any point while watching it. And I watched a couple of interviews with um, Robert Eggers, the director, and or Roger, Ugh, whatever the Robert. director, <laughs> the director, and he he thinks of it as a horror film. He's like, but it's a horror film from. He's like, it's it's. A horror story for a Puritan. So if you are a Puritan, this is a horror story. And I think he, he does that accurately. And I think that's why we can then say that we can treat it as a period piece, because it is meant to be of that piece. I would just say it was like a good story. Like I was always interested. I understood that fear was there, but I wasn't myself personally afraid because I'm like, well, I don't think witches exist. <laughs> and so, and I also, I'm familiar from a little bit of medieval Latin, Latin and stuff I've read, what all the witchy tropes are that we're going to talk about. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's showing up. So I recognize it. But for me, yeah, and modern audiences, I know it got some flack for being like not scary or like teenagers would go to this horror movie, but then there's all these people talking in like uh, 17th century dialogue and it's not, it's not, it's not full of jump scares or, or really that much gore. There certainly is gore or goring anyway, <laughs> but there isn't really, um, not, not like something like a slasher film. Yeah. I think it's worth pointing out that witches do exist, just not as presented in this film. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I guess he got a lot of flack from Wiccans. That's true. Didn't he? Um, yeah. Uh, I-, I don't know if he got that much flack per se. Just some people were very unhappy with the portrayal in this movie. But yeah. I did not dig in enough into those responses to really have a uh, proper discussion of what Wicked's thought about this movie. Beyond some neo-pagans apparently liking it a lot. Well, I mean, e- even <laughs> taking out modern-day religious beliefs, um, and, and I'm not saying this to be offensive to anybody who may practice Wiccanism or paganism, but this is a witch in a classical horror sense. This is a witch as the various myths that grew up in Europe claimed a witch existed um the reality of witches and witch trials such as they were were usually more about like things like property oh, and we'll social inequality we're yeah. gonna get to that oh yeah sure. we're getting there but I, th- I think i should i mean i'll so, oh. sorry sorry just I, yeah i know we're gonna get there but just the point is that this is a very specific type of witch based on a very certain type of narrative yeah 
and and I th- I mean I'll, I'll pepper in some of the stuff that because I watched some of those those reviews because I was curious what the director was thinking and what the actors were thinking in in the making of this. But he kind of is like was describing how it was like a, to him like a, a New England horror story in the same kind of tradition as like Lovecraft would have been drawing on because it just is sort of very present in that area of um, the United States. This whole kind of history and. That it was always just something he was really, really fascinated with, and yeah. So, but I, I agree. You can, you can. I think it's, it's, it would. You can say it's a horror movie, like on just this basic, like, it's about something horrifying. But I'd say, yeah, we can also talk about it as a period piece, which we're probably going to lean into more because we're here for the history as well. <laughs> well, you guys are here for the history. Before we enter spoiler territory, mm-hmm. let's have a quick plot summary so that people can listen up to this point. And then if you haven't seen the movie, at least if you're in Canada, it is very easy to watch. So I encourage you to do that before you go any further, because I don't want to talk about this movie without any spoilers, to put it plainly. Like always, we I, are I, just going to say the whole thing out there. <laughs> I'm not encouraging you. I'm just flat out telling you, go see this now. It is amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. It just even so, just as a narrative, like the story is like wonderfully intact. Like the relationships between the characters are thick. They play off each other. It's very, very much captures a lot of the of the time moments and synthesized in a way that I think a modern audience can still understand it. Mm-hmm. And so the witch begins with William, a Puritan, being kicked out of his plantation because he's a huge dick. Corey and I were guessing that he must have been teaching the Bible in like a unusual way or something, that that seemed to be what it was about, that it was non-standard for the time or something of that nature. Yeah, that that's kind of all that's really hinted at, is that it's some form of religious dispute or dispute about how things are being taught or explained. But but heresy, I guess. But I guess not heresy to the level that you'd, you'd yourself be, like, hanged, because that would no, be... No, not heresy, uh, but it was enough for everybody else to hate them, which you can clearly see in the opening scene just from the expression on the faces of the rest of the people in the church. They leave with their wagon. You will not see any other people through the rest of the film, save a couple of important exceptions as they leave to set up their own farm on the edge of a forest, there's William, his wife Catherine, his daughter Thomason, who is the main character of the movie, their twins, uh, Caleb, their young son, and a baby. After they set up their farm, Thomason is put in care of the baby. She takes it out, plays some games with the baby. The young Samuel then disappears. And the rest of the movie is about what happened to baby Samuel and what repercussions that has on the rest of the cast. Mm-hmm. Okay, pause it if you haven't watched it, go do that, and then come back. <laughs> I think something really important right at the beginning is it seems to me, because one piece of dialogue is something like, I don't know if it's William specifically that they say, is like, but you need to stop this. It seems like, you know, he had an option to maybe not do whatever he's doing that got them kicked out. And clearly whatever choices he made were the ones that got them kicked out. But he's stuck to that, cause that's, and that's important because his character, um, yeah, what we're going to uh, uh, unveil about his character. I don't know, where are we going first, then? Uh, let's talk about the two levels at which this film is operating. The first is historical beliefs about witchcraft. 
which I think is the thing you can research and kind of really dive deeply into. And the other level is how this movie is making a greater statement about how gender operates now. And Mm -hmm. I think the gender argument is definitely the discussion that the witch has had quite a bit. I don't feel like the witchcraft portion outside of academic articles I do not have access to has really garnered nearly as much attention. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think um, a very common thing with narrative, um, you see this a lot in very speculative narrative, science fiction, fantasy are the normal examples, but historical fiction to some extent as well. Regardless of when or where they're set, they're often meant to be commenting somehow on when they were written. Um, A really good parallel in this case is The Crucible, which is also purportedly about witchcraft, is talking about McCarthyism. So, I mean, yeah, I certainly see how in this case, sure, the movie's about a witch on one level, but on another level, yeah, it's very much about gender dynamics and gender politics in the modern world. And I think when we, because we watched it, and then we looked at, like, some reviews of it, and I think the, like, Wikipedia summary was like, it's about... Thomason, who is, you know, this character that feels repressed by the patriarchal society, blah, blah, blah. I didn't quite feel that was right. I was like, I don't think that's really what this movie is about. I think that's what we care about now more as the audience, because we don't really care about witches so much these days. It's not really like a big thing on a lot of our radars. Um, But I was, and and something that the uh, Egret has said is it was originally meant to be like an ensemble story with no central character. And then it was just sort of in revisions of the um, script. And I think working with some of the producers that they sort of pulled Thomason out as a central figure to kind of orient it around. And I think that's actually probably, I think that was a good choice, probably just that the audience has someone to connect to more than others. Cause some of the other characters I think are very hard for modern sensibilities. So you can kind of do this little transposition in. I don't even think for modern sensibilities. I think a few of the characters are deliberately unlikable. Mm, yeah. Um, whether because of decisions they make, whether because of stubbornness and, you know, arguments of faith that occur in the narrative, um, or just because they're downright nasty people. Mm, or their age or their yeah. yeah kind of behaviors with that. But yeah, I, I, it never really sat with me that this was a big feminist film. I mean, sure, you can definitely do a feminist analysis of this film, and there's nothing saying that you should not do a feminist analysis of this, or of witches in general, and what they mean in this time, and there's lots of important things. I think, I mean, it's not, it's not like the first time we've looked at witch-related stuff, like we did that review of the burning times and we've also talked about like this the satanic panic and uh well that was i guess over on iatropexy but um like you sh- there's important things about women in witchcraft that you can look at but i think yeah to me this is more interesting as um an eschatological kind of story well one thing <laughs> i found really interesting because again we looked up uh, just a brief wikipedia summary after we finished watching it And it talked about how some of the themes being played with are, you know, Thomasina, she feels like she's... Thomason? Sorry, Thomason, (laughs) wow. Um, There's a scene where she's, you know, praying and she's confessing how she's committed every sin and she thinks she's a horrible person. And uh, the Wikipedia thing talked about how it's, you know, she she's a rebellious figure she wants to break free she wants to explore her sexuality and i'm like in watching the movie i didn't get that at all um i found a lot of the conflict and tension she faces is actually because she's being pushed away by her family but her desire doesn't seem to be to fight against them it seems to be to properly integrate with them even though they won't allow her to 
Yeah, and I think that is at the level that this movie is working with gender and why Thomason was chosen as the protagonist as being the most relatable character to now. Because Thomason has a bunch of fences that are erected around her mm-hmm. in this movie. And they just constrict and constrict and constrict as the movie goes on until she is robbed about of just about every kind of choice or agency that she could have. Mm-hmm. And that works as just a general commentary on how women are treated in society in general. One thing I think you could even take from that... Um not only is there the gender gap, there's the generational gap. Um, a lot of the trouble Thomason faces comes from her kind of roughly middle-aged mother. And um, I know, I, I don't, I'm not very well-versed in this, but I have heard people discuss, you know, problems they face with the patriarchy, how oftentimes they find a lot of w- middle-aged women are the ones who actually help to uphold those those values. I don't think she's middle-aged. Like, I think that both the parents look older, but I think that's just casting because people look older in this time. I think they're probably supposed to be in like okay. their later later twenties. R- regardless, maybe, at the latest. Regardless <laughs> of how old the character actually is, mm-hmm. you still have a generational mm-hmm. clash occurring. Yeah, and they're immigrants from England in this new place. There's that point going on. Well, but they're colonizers um, too. Yeah, but something that I think was really important about like the fences that Michael was talking about and how Thomason is bounded is that the irony is strong in this film. There's a couple of ironic things that are really important in the sense of dramatic irony, where because it's a Puritan culture and there's a repression, it is ironic that all this repression, I feel, ultimately forces Thomason into this final choice at the end, which then goes with sex, death, and all these fears that people have about female power. And it's like, it's created by the Puritan structure around her, just as the idea of the witch is literally created by the culture, etc. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I will say about the fences too is how the movie's very clever in literalizing that metaphor. Um, a lot of the fences created around her are kind of they're metaphorical, the restrictions faced by her life and her family, but as the film goes on, she literally becomes more and more physically imprisoned as well. Hmm. I didn't notice that. Yeah, that's true. Well, not to jump ahead too far, but the ending scene where she makes her big choice, which I'm Mm -hmm. sure we'll talk about in due time, Mm -hmm. literally happens while she's locked in a shed. Uh, I will say this film is not subtle about its imagery. Nope. Which I think it works better for that. If you were to just start this film, you'd think, oh, Samuel got taken away. There's going to be a mystery about what happened to Samuel. And then I think it's like, a few minutes later, that smash cut, witch, taking away the baby, killing it, smashing it up into ointment to use for transvection. And at that point, you know, there is no mystery. Supernatural forces are actually <laughs> fully in play in this story. It's funny because, like you said, the imagery is not subtle at all. But the trade off being it makes the subtleties in the movie that much more effective. It, it is very funny, though, that... Because, you know, I'm, I'm like, going in, it's starting, and then we see all this historical stuff. You're like, well, maybe they're going to do this, like, you wonder if it's real or not. It's like, nope, that's 100% just, like, descriptions from the Malleus Maleficarum about the kinds of things witches would do, allegedly. And, uh, yeah. And I know that the the director said that he lifted, like some of the dialogue, particularly around things like possession 
and like what witches do from like contemporaneous descriptions of the day quoting what people say i think like there's a there's a character caleb at one point is possessed and he's and i think his scene where he's screaming is actually like a reported thing somebody said while allegedly possessed back in the day so both of the temptation scenes tempting women to witchcraft in this movie are taken from accounts that i have read not from new england that is why one argument with robert eggers about what he has said has been the source for this movie because most of what it's taken from is from central europe and england which is where i recognize them from and that's okay too because i think it works better that way and we will get to that okay okay (laughs) but as for the central arguments of this film and its treatment of witchcraft i think a lot of it comes from a book called witcher witches and neighbors by robin briggs or at least the academic milieu that created that book and a bunch of other witchcraft trial historiography i felt like there was a lot of stuff being drawn from academic texts definitely things drawn from primary sources and it is presenting all of this in a historical context that what the characters believe unlike if you were to view something from today and go well witches didn't exist there are a bunch of systems that created this belief and brought it to the point where people were executed for having supposedly or actually tried to do harmful magic on other people but within the bounds of the film what the characters truly believe is what is happening William has set up his homestead and his farm at the edge of a forest that is literally crawling with which yeah bad choice i I think it's important to that and I think this is from one of the interviews with um Eggert. I mean he says the same thing multiple times um um it's it's that uh, as much as we read like that the historical accounts of like you know the Salem witch trials or other other cases of witches where people were were killed um he raised the point that while there there was definitely probably machinations from like people who maybe knew that witches didn't exist then claiming other people were witches to get rid of them and i don't doubt that there was this control over women like i'm not saying that fe- that that feminist analysis is incorrect but he did introduce the idea that the people then might believe that they themselves were witches or that um, other people around them might honestly believe they were witches because of these things. That it's not like everyone was in a big conspiracy. Uh, and raising the idea of, like, if you had done something bad, like, if I think of, like, postpartum postpartum psychosis or depression or something, and you, like, kill your child, then if you are a Puritan and you think of yourself, then you I'm, the only really good explanation available to you is that surely the devil did something and you were complicit with that. So you would be as far as you could tell, a witch. So I think that people might have... I hadn't really thought of it that way. Is like people would honestly have agreed and identified and be horrified that they were witches at the same time as also other constraints creating this. Because the witch is, is a contingent construct of people, for sure. Um, and it is... And, the forces of control are not so like conscious that people are just like, wahaha, this inconvenient woman, I will get rid of her. It's more like, that's just kind of what happens. There are two things that are happening in a witchcraft trial. There is the people and relationships within the community where they believe that harmful magic has been doing something to them. 
that is responsible for their misfortunes in some way. So this plays out in community conflicts being attributed to supernatural causes. The other ingredient is the court system or the just general judiciary part of society believing that those those uh, harmful magic incidents that people believe in are part of a greater conspiracy that is trying to overthrow Christendom itself. Mm-hmm. This movie is very much focused on the relationships between people in an agricultural setting because this is what witchcraft trials at their core were mainly about. Is my cow got sick, somebody must have cursed my cow Stop that person from cursing my cow. Mm-hmm. And to your point of people believing this, what would happen is you're trying to stop these supernatural events from affecting your life. You start employing counter magic because that's the only thing you think can help stop that. And then using the counter magic starts becoming evidence that you're the witch that used magic. And at this point, people are actually either believing that they are doing magic or that somebody has been doing magic to them. <laughs> in the case of the witch, the magic is actually happening. This is not in their heads. Yeah. Like, we talked, Corey and I, about that you could, if you really wanted to, make an analysis of this film, that this could all be possibly explained by natural phenomenon. But that's not really what the film's aiming at. And it's. And I think you said, Michael, like over our, our text conversation, that would be the least interesting way for this movie to go. No, well, I think personally, it's, better... it's the least interesting way. Yeah, I'm not saying that in general that's a bad filmmaking choice. Just that no. I would not be interested in the story no. at all. And I mean, it's pretty clear from the beginning. Like when Sam disappears, like if a wolf took a baby, you'd see it. There's no way it's going to just like snatch it and disappear. And sorry, that, it has to be magic. That's an important plot point to keep in mind too. Mm-hmm. Is it starts out all the characters are in denial. And they're insisting that, oh, you know, it had to have been a wolf. It had to have been a wolf. And then they kind of slowly come to accept that, no, it wasn't a wolf. Mm-hmm. I mean, we as the audience get to see the brutal child murder a few minutes later. So we know that it's not a wolf. And it's kind of watching the family kind of come to grips with what's happening. We get to see the implied child murder. The child is not murdered on camera. <laughs> he is mashed up into ointment yeah yeah yeah. but you don't really see that you know what i mean this is a 14a movie i think isn't it mm-hmm. yeah there's something it's it's not you, you do not see the baby does not get cut because it's not so, that kind of movie it's not about showing the gore of a baby being beheaded it's about showing that there is this witch with mm-hmm. the baby and the knife and then she is rubbing blood over herself so that she can fly um and all those things are shown just, yeah. Well, it's it's horrific through its implication rather than what it actually shows. And I think that's another reason, again, I would argue it's a great horror film. Yeah. And actually, now that I think about it, because, I mean, I know about mashing up babies to put on wands and to put on, a, a, like, the body to fly as a witch thing. But if you... I realize that's actually a really specific piece of historical knowledge. I bet a lot of audience members did not understand yeah, for what me, those see, those dis- apparently disconnected scenes were about. Yeah, for me, that was just, okay, witch stole a baby, and then witch is horribly killing baby. Like, that, that that was it. Like, it was only afterwards that you explained. Oh, yeah, no, they totally mashed them up into the pace to fly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the movie does not explain this to you again. Mm-hmm. This is another reason why I think this really works as a period piece, because it is casting you as a 
Puritan viewer of the story in 1630, mm-hmm. you already know this stuff. Mm-hmm. I like that. Because it would have really ruined it if it was like, what if he was made into a paste for the witch? Like, if somebody had said that, I would have been like, nah. <laughs> well, one, it's, it's interesting, too, because one thing that is talked about um, is the Puritan fear that because he wasn't baptized, he's in hell. That's really the only fear that's ever expressed for the baby. It's not, oh, you know, what if he was used for evil? What if a witch did this or that? It's, oh, you know, he wasn't baptized, therefore he's burning in hell. And that was more terrifying than any real-world application or real-world implication. If witches exist in your worldview, you should be much more afraid of that than hell, I'd think. But hell is always the worst. (laughs) This leads to the point where I knew that this film was serious about its historical sources and making a historical argument when it has William and Caleb suddenly have, well, not suddenly, but they have a conversation about Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea that you are either of the elect or you aren't, and you do not know until you die if you are going to go to hell or not. Mm -hmm. How this plays into the themes of the film is this is actually an argument from another academic text I was not able to dig up which one in all my university notes as I hastily looked through them this morning in preparation for this podcast. But the idea is that as you are doing a witchcraft confession, if you are a Calvinist, there is a point where you go, well, I'm damned anyway, so maybe I might as well do this because I am probably a witch anyhow and just didn't know it. Mm. This, it's of course, really... plays into the ending of the movie, which is also making a, Cal- a well, anti-Calvinist argument, let us say. Yeah, it's, and I mean, that conversation, it is just so well shows how, like, sad this whole circumstance is. Like, as this young boy is, like, realizing the horror generated by the belief system <laughs> of which he must be a part because that's what he's indoctrinated with. And it, and it begins the father's response to any concern of uh, any emotional outburst or problem where his only response is, we should pray about this or turn to God. And that's and I, at some point, I think we were watching the movie. I was like, if that's your only response to any problem, it's not going to go well. You have to have other ways to like, because it literally stops you from connecting with people. Like, that's the thing is because this is a thing about a family that will get torn apart. Um, and it's literally this belief style that seems to be generating that. We should say very carefully that we are talking about Puritans in that time, because there might still be people who are, oh, I don't know, Presbyterian or or of the Calvinist persuasion. I think it is falling out of favor, but we're not making specific claims about modern belief systems or or, or religion there. We're looking at this particular time period, historically. (laughs) So what that idea of I should be a witch anyway plays into is a subject that's been explored by Walter Stevens and Lyndall Roper, that witchcraft narratives, as you read them in confessions, are negotiated constructions. And that's how it appears in the movie. You are being tortured or questioned by someone using what basically amounts to torture. You are trying to fulfill what the torture is given, but the torture cannot just put words into your mouth so the fantasy that you are both creating is what creates this witch figure operating on those two levels that i talked about earlier about what the state and people who have an academic interest in demonology believe 
and what you believe as a farmer who thinks that your cow is sick because somebody cursed Mm it. This is what happens to Thomason as the movie continues. She is negotiated into becoming a witch because that is the only thing that fulfills any kind of function of stopping all these terrible things from happening to her. In a situation where you're being tortured by an Inquisitor, the only way you're going to get the Inquisitor to stop is to make a narrative that the Inquisitor will accept. The film, you, if you were to read it as like a psychoanalytic, like if you were to take that kind of analysis to it, like if you think of the witches as being this construct created by the Puritan belief system, I think, I mean, they were constructed by a lot of different belief systems in Europe, but right, this specific story is a Puritan story, so I'll just keep saying it that way. But recognize that I know that there are witches in Germany, there are witches all over the place. But (laughs) if you think of it as being like this, whether it's collective unconscious or just unconscious, but this thing, it's, it's what's interesting if you're taking that kind of reading of it then it's literally that that those unconscious forces are being made manifest because now they're literally there and they're literally created by these relational processes between people because as we talked about the fences and boundaries and that is what makes it happen so that to me is like another kind of great irony that saturates this story mm-hmm. well another aspect of it as well um you talk about the idea of how you know it, being tried and in the process of of uh, investigating witchcraft, part of it is you, you craft the narrative and you force the person who's accused of being a witch into the circumstances where they kind of become one. Um, I, I kind of commented after Marie and I finished it, it feels almost like Thomason is targeted. The end of the movie involves the devil giving her the choice to become a witch and her accepting it. And to me, it felt like, you know, the devil had maybe targeted her and she was being forced into these circumstances where she had no other choice but to agree to this. And I think in a way, that's literally what's happening. Um, It's just it's not necessarily the quote unquote devil forcing her to make that choice, but she's still being forced and engineered into circumstances where she has no option but to embrace it. It is her family that is doing this to her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not the devil. Not until the very last moments of the film does the devil sweep in and go, well, guess you got no choice now. Either become a witch or starve to death in your wrecked farm that you can't get away from. Yeah, because we had a long talk about the word targeted because I thought that was Mm -hmm. too active. I was like, this is more like the circumstances engineer that... She's just sort of bounded into this and makes her make that choice. But it's not like the devil from the outset, I think, was going for it. The devil, like, takes the opportunity, as Mike has pointed out. See, I I think there's at least two readings there. Um, I think one is you could argue that everything that happens was engineered by the devil, right from the way Thomason's family Mm -hmm. treats her to what they're doing to their behavior. And that's a description that is very much in keeping with the worldview of the characters in the movie. I think the second option you can take, which is more critical of the characters and the beliefs they're espousing in the movie, is that, yes, it was engineered, but it was engineered by humans. Yeah, the movie takes a very literal approach to witchcraft beliefs and iconography, but then it takes that like unsubtle hit you over the head with this imagery approach and within that creates a lot of nuance to how you can approach this situation Mm -hmm. and it ends up making a much broader commentary 
through Thomason's own situation about Puritan society, or I wouldn't say Puritan, the society in the 17th century Europe and areas colonized by Europe. So I touched on this film is filled with iconography, which is part of that unsubtle approach. Black Philip, maybe don't take a literal demon goat with you to your farm is the <laughs> is the lesson we learned from Black Philip. Fun filming fact, that goat really did hate Ralph Innocent. Apparently attacked him and put him in the hospital three times. So I th- maybe some of that on-screen relationship reflects their off-screen relationship. <laughs> there is an amazing scene at the very end of this movie, which is a reconstruction of a Central European idea of what a witch's Sabbath looks like. It is taken straight from Durer. Uh, the witches all do transvection at the end. Mm-hmm. Probably the most effective representation of that i have seen yeah that was good sorry just for clarification for listeners who might not know what that is or for me who has no idea what it is what is transvection transvection is when demons help you fly okay Mm -hmm. it takes a bunch of historical sources mixes them for a very distilled effect because in the end this is a very small movie Mm mm-hmm It takes place in a very constricted set of locations. There's the farm. There's the forest. Uh, That's really about it. (laughs) The only other location we see is the plantation right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And within minutes of the movie opening, the plantation's Mm -hmm. doors are literally closed on the family. In one of the interviews I watched, there was this comment about how the, the first three, five minutes are very hectic and fast. And it's sort of like a city life thing. And then the whole rest of the movie is slow and quiet and silent. Yeah, I've (laughs) never seen a movie make such beautifully creepy use of total silence. Mm -hmm. No background music, nothing. It's just quiet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very claustrophobic film, despite taking place in the wide Canadian wilderness. Yeah. Uh, it's not the Canadian wilderness in the movie, but... Yeah. It, it, I did... When I, I looked at it, I was like, that looks more like Ontario than New England to me, was was my feeling. You guessed was, correctly. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, it was filmed there. That makes sense. I think one important thing about the setting as well is it, it very much inhabits a kind of liminal space. Because um, it starts with the characters leaving, you know, quote-unquote, civilization and the city and the settlement... And then you have the forest, which they're right next to, which very clearly represents, you know, the wild, the wicked, the unforgiven. But they're not inhabiting either. They're literally trapped in between the two, and they're kind of, they're trying to cling to the one while fending off and, frankly, losing to the other. Mm -hmm. Yes, and in witchcraft confessions and literature, liminal space plays a big part. At least in Polish witchcraft trials, a lot of bad spells you were supposed to do took place on the borders between forest, village, between communities. Like mm-hmm. in this case, literally, it mm-hmm. was considered you you did magic in the borderlands, and that's mm-hmm. what is happening here. There's um right at the beginning like another piece of the iron of irony because when you see like the doors of the plantation closing, it's really interesting that you see like indigenous people. Are, are in that scene and it's kind of like 
knowing that, that, you know, these are English Puritans, the kind of racism at the time, it's like this family who is from England has been thrown out. And there's this other group that would, you know, still be ex excluded and like probably used and abused based upon the history. Not probably. But, yeah, we know. We know <laughs> that um, that would have been happening. But it's like, but they're, they're allowed in and you're not to just show kind of like a further level of how out that I, family is. I found that moment very interesting, actually. I think that's where you see a little bit of modern sensibility kind of creeping its way into the movie to some extent. Um, because, like you said, this the style of narrative, um, First Nations individuals would have been used to represent, quote-unquote, the wild, right? Europeans, especially at this time, would have viewed them as, you know, all those horrible words we've heard ascribed to them. Like the Rousseau's noble savage. Blah, yeah, exactly. Blah, blah. Um, mm -hmm. So in this case, you have the people who are considered too wild to be civilized, and again, in the language of this universe, being welcomed into the community while the family isn't. Mm-hmm. And the wild people in the woods are not the First Nations people no. in the woods of New England. The wild people in the woods are all Europeans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and speaking of like bringing European imagery, because I, I noticed this, that the, there's, a, there's a rabbit there, but it's not a rabbit. It's a hare. And I was like, because when I saw it move, I was like, it's way too big to be a rabbit. Because I'm from the prairies in Canada. I know what a hare looks like. And that was actually a European hare that he used specifically. And Eggert said, it, because the European hare is involved in a lot of these stories, and he wanted to use it, even though it's not an animal that lives in New England, as this imported image. He's like, he's like, and they have these wild, crazy-looking eyes, which it does. See, that, that's really cool, because one thing I was commenting on, um, I, I, I jokingly call it the demon rabbit, is um, ra in my kind of background and the stuff I've read, Rabbits are not typically used as a symbol of the wild. Um, the, the kind of the, the routine European or at least English symbols of the wild are either things like the stag, which is meant to kind of represent the nobility found in the wild, um, the fox, which is kind of like this trickstery kind of intelligent kind of suit, almost civilized but not quite, or the wolf, which is actively predatory and dangerous. So to have a rabbit be representative of the wild really threw me. I'm like. I, I don't know how to process this. Well, the hare is not a representative of the wild, though. But this is another case where the movie is showing something about witchcraft belief under the assumption you're a Puritan viewer who knows this stuff already. Right. But <laughs> conversely, that's a creative thing the narrative is doing because it's mm -hmm. making an assumption you have knowledge you have no way of having. Mm-hmm. So that, in yeah. turn, creates different interpretations and kind of yeah. really changes the viewing experience. Like, I mean, yeah. you guys, I mean, Michael, obviously, you wrote a thesis on this, Marie, you've taken classes on this. Whereas I, not knowing much about witchcraft, have to kind of try filling in these gaps with other a different symbolic framework. Other than the knowing hair. from the interviews with Eggert that the hair was involved... I, in, in symbolism of some of stories, I actually don't know what its symbolism is. I don't know if you know better, Michael. The hare is a witch's familiar. That is your first introduction that a witch is living in those woods is when he tries to shoot the hare. Yeah. Because this is an English witchcraft belief, and because these Puritans are from England, that's what they're carrying over. There's a bit of this in Polish witchcraft belief, too, that witches have servants. But in English witchcraft belief, the familiar is how how you make your pact with the devil. Mm. 
because you feed the familiar and the familiar is what is actually doing the magic or aiding you to do your evil magic. Mm. That's why the hare is so prominent and why every time the hare is there, that's a signal that a witch is going to show up. Yeah. Okay, it's like the scene where, um, I forget which character, but somebody comes back to the farm and the hare is literally sitting amongst their livestock. Yeah, because they first see it in the forest. And then I remember when they see it, do they see it a third time or do they just see it twice? They see it multiple times. Yeah. Basically, any time shit is going to go down in this movie... The hair shows up first. <laughs> but I, I remember that it seemed to go, because it came from their periphery on their farm and then it moved in. And I was like, it's a bit mm -hmm. like, you know, vampires need you to invite them over the threshold. But this one's just sort of creeping slowly in and in and in towards you. Until I think when it was sitting in with the farm animals, like they didn't do anything about it. They just left it there. So it could presumably then, you know, can be there. Like there's nothing you can do about it. Well, I mean, you mentioned vampires, but... Um... Again, I can't speak to a wider European experience, but at least in kind of the English tradition, evil is always something that needs to be invited in. Um, and it, it doesn't, obviously doesn't need to be as conscious as saying, please come in. Like, you need to do something that invites the evil onto you. Well, in this case, I think it's whatever William did. Like, that seems to me, because, and and uh, I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to talk about the characters specifically, if that was on your... Well, that is not on my list, but I did want to talk about William because yeah. we talked about how this is about Thomason's choices. Yeah. Thomason doesn't really have choices. No. Or the choices that are presented to her are false choices. Yeah. I mean, the only she thing... She is going to get constricted by that fence no matter what she does. The person who has agency and can do anything about the situation is William. Yeah. Uh, he patently refuses to do so well, through yeah. the course of the movie. He, he's useless, yeah. That's yeah. one thing, actually, I found... <laughs> one thing that very much surprised me about his character, actually, is you get the introduction, the family's being kicked out of the, the plantation. I honestly thought, based on what we saw in those first few moments, that William was going to be revealed to be a very abusive figure. Like, I thought there would be some kind of abuse happening to his family. It turns out he's not. He never attacks them, he never harms them. Um, what he is, is very proud. Well, yeah, okay, you're shaking your head. But in, in, you know, purely literal terms. I think you're talking about physical abuse in yes. this case. I yeah. agree with you completely. He, did, yeah. he does not physically abuse his family yeah. outside of one or two instances where he clips someone. Right, yeah. which I, I fully expected was going to be happening based on those first mm -hmm. few moments. Um, but what he is, is he's incredibly proud and he's useless. He's not intentionally cruel. In, in the sense that you're meaning. He yeah. is he is cruel, but only cruel like as per the Calvinist belief system. And I was like, he is the father of all sins because it is his pride uh, that he won't apologize for whatever he did or change what he did. And he's always sticking to his line and that keeps everyone trapped. And that makes all these other things happen. Well, and, and as an example of how proud he is, there's one beautiful scene fairly early on. Um, he's chopping wood, but all of his clothes need to be taken to be washed. So he's just wearing this like white sheet basically around his waist. And um, he's very emaciated. He's very thin. But you can see the muscle tone. So it's very clearly meant to be drawing a Jesus parallel. And what I love about that scene is it's clearly how he views himself. It is not the reality of who he is, though. Because there's like, I think you were saying there's two other instances then with his wood chopping as that as it evolves, right? Yeah, the, the wood chopping evolves throughout the movie. There's him thinking of himself as Jesus and dressed like Jesus. 
there's him chopping wood in the rain to kind of blow off some stress. And then there's him desperate, nothing left he can do. So he just starts chopping wood. And then the woodpile falls on him and he dies. Well, after the goat <laughs> rams him into it. But yes. Yeah, this is, he is kind of an embodiment of what happens if you take a 17th century Puritan, ideal Puritan, as you would find in representations in the English Civil War, and took that to its ultimate conclusion. He will not back down from any of the positions he has. And in this case, we already know from early in the film that his family is going to starve that winter. Mm -hmm. He refuses to go back to the plantation because that means going back to the church, even though that's his the only way his family is going to survive. So all these scenes where he is chopping wood, which he does constantly as his way of not having to talk with his family, <laughs> yeah. it is the very definition of hubris. He knows his family is going to die. His pride does not allow him to save his family. So he makes this giant wood pile as if they are actually going to be burning that wood through the winter and not just starving to death. And then he is in another great turn of irony. That wood pile does fall on him at the end. I mean, he's he is pushed. <laughs> he's like gored by the devil goat. And then it, 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 he's pushed into it from that. But it's like. He, he he did create his own demise. Well, it's, it's very apt as well, because the one thing he's able to do is to build this frankly useless woodpile, mm -hmm. and he ends up buried in it. Doesn't Catherine accuse him of that? Doesn't she literally say that? Yep. Like, you can't farm, you can't hunt, all you can do is chop wood. Um, yeah. Again, this film is not subtle. No. Nope. <laughs> About certain aspects of its narrative, William is not approached subtly. On the other hand, as a character, he's incredibly nuanced as a person if you mm -hmm. examine his motivations. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because he is obviously struggling with this through the narrative as he talks to himself and mainly Caleb, yeah. the son who's supposed to take over this farm. But he actively refuses the answer that's sitting right in front of him. Well, he, so he, he is very much an interesting character, like you said, because, I mean, ultimately he's too proud to do what he needs to do, but it's not like he doesn't grapple with the choice. I, I think it's, he's a good example of a character in this movie where in many ways he's suffering just as much as everyone else is because of the structure and the system they're stuck in. Well, the denial is strong in him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, his, his mind is all, just as fenced as Thomason. Yeah. Like, physically is throughout this narrative yeah he, he cannot think outside of certain boundaries he's grappling with it but he refuses to recognize anything outside well, and therein of lies the ideals kind of, he has yeah, th therein lies kind of his limitation and his fatal flaw as a character is all he can do is grapple with these things but either because he lacks the strength or more likely because he lacks the insight to realize mm -hmm. he needs to step beyond those like the, these these structures, these systems, this belief set up that he thinks is saving him is actually what's hurting him the most. And he, he's able to come just up to the cusp of seeing that. But because he is so indoctrinated into it, he can't make that admission to himself. It's like when Catherine says to him, like after Caleb has returned from being lost and has and, and is possessed. She, and she says, like, what do you think about this? He's like, I have no thoughts. Like, it's like... <laughs> Like Catherine, yeah, but... 
<laughs> by that point in the movie, they know that the forest around them is crawling with witches. Yeah. Or at least that is externally from all evidence what is happening. Yeah. But within the minds of the people in the family, yeah. because of how they're thinking about these things, there's one of their own must be the one who is doing this. Yeah. Which is where the boundaries come into play for Thomason. I well, mean, I... Catherine herself is tempted later on through a different mechanism from Thomason with the devil coming in the form of you can have your children back. Mm -hmm. If you don't make this choice, you are going to lose them all. Yeah. Did you notice in that scene, um, because that's the one with the raven. Yes. That her cup was back? Yes. Yeah. Again, not a subtle movie. (laughs) Nope. So just for clarification, um, at the beginning of the movie, we see William and Caleb checking uh, animal traps that they'd set in the woods and Caleb asks where he got it, and William mentions that he sold the wife's, or Catherine's, silver cup. He traded it with some passersby to get the traps. And later on, when the cup comes up, he admits this to her, and she's very distraught Oh, hold on, hold on. But before that, she bitches at Thomason for losing it for quite a while. Yeah. Because she, cause he lied about that, that. He never mentioned that he took it or sold, or sold it or anything. The yeah, so tension he, he, around this cup is just as much or eclipses the tension over losing their son. Yeah. Yeah. Or that there's a Uh, witch. She wanted it back because she thought it could be used. It is a symbol of salvation to Catherine because Mm -hmm. she thought it could be sold. And it absolutely crushes her to find out that it was already sold. Mm -hmm. And there is no escape. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The cup is gone. Your last hope that you could escape this situation is gone but in the case of the father he not only doesn't cop to it he allows thomason to suffer Mm -hmm. in his stead despite his own rhetoric Mm -hmm. to his family about the need to suffer and god's will he will never own up to these things or at least not until it's far too late (laughs) For it to mean anything. Because having that rift between Thomason and Catherine is like, well, had they been together, (laughs) you know. And I think there's an important thing, because there's a a bit by the river when Thomason's, um, I think she's washing William's clothes, and then Caleb's coming to get water, and then the twin, um, one of the twins, Mercy, shows up. And then Thomason, because Mercy's, Mercy is, I don't know how old, three? Like, they're, they're toddler age. The, the mm. twins are typical bratty little kids. Yeah, they're just very annoying. But they do manifest some of the, like, group hysteria stuff from, like, the Salem witchcraft trials later on kind of thing because they're impressionable. But um, the, like, Mercy says then that accuses Thomason of being the witch, and Thomason leans into that. And I thought that scene was, it's the closest thing to anything being funny in this movie. Um, it's not really, but it's definitely, like, what an older sibling says to a younger one when the older sibling is annoyed and wants the other one to shut up. And because that then later becomes a thing that people put against Thomason because then Mercy says she said she was a witch. And Caleb mm-hmm. also heard Thomason say this. And Thomas is like, I was like joking to make them like be quiet, but it's way too late by then. So, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, the twin is too young to understand sarcasm. Caleb is kind of at the age where he should probably get it. But it's 
the attempted humor or the attempted sarcasm is clearly being lost on him because he, like everyone else in the family, has become so desperate and lost. Well, he's also probably conflicted because maybe at that admission, because he was clearly, that's like the second time in the film that it's implied that he's looking at her breasts and that he's like has some lustful intentions towards Thomason, which would be wrong just on, you know, lust, but also on, you know, family member kind of thing. And yeah, it, and so then, but for her to then say that right after he's having those feelings would probably make him believe she was a witch. Well, as you say, <laughs> it's a way for him to confront his own feelings of guilt and to justify where his behavior came from. Mm -hmm. um, and also to kind of, to excuse him. Because like, oh, this wasn't my fault. I wasn't doing these horrible things. She was making me do these horrible things. Yeah. This is a case of this tiny cast... Because yeah. as I said, this is a very small movie, mm -hmm. allows you to have these discussions about character relationships because okay. you are with them and in their heads. When we were just uh, typing to each other about this shortly after watching it, Corey had talked about taking a supernatural or a psychological interpretation on this film. And I think why this film works and what it's trying to do is saying that in the 17th century, as someone buying into this belief, the psychological and the supernatural are the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the movie is explicitly drawing that connection. They believe that one person is doing witchcraft who isn't, but that is going to manifest in it actually happening. Mm -hmm. Because that's how they are processing this. As a person on a farm or in a village in the 17th century, something bad is happening to you. You have heard about this vast conspiracy of witches who are making bad things happen. That is how you are processing the thing happening. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. Yeah. And Caleb, I mean, he Caleb gives in to the, the lust in the sense that the witch traps him with that. I love that scene where it's clearly somebody else's hand reaching out and in the hag form. <laughs> so I was a bit I was like, well, that special effect was a that was a cheap one there. That's okay. Um, but it was it was effective though because she lures him in to get close. He's and then he after that he's been possessed or whatever, and then you know he dies of witchy witchiness. Yeah, coughing up the apple that he lied about. I think like um. Because obviously at, at right at the end and everything's falling apart and then the witch shows up and the witch uh, the witches do cause this like destruction that is like an animal high cat an animal violence because like animals are torn apart people are like injured massively I think the the twins are are are, are they just gone when they're from the shed or do we see their bodies I don't remember. I think they're just gone from the shed. I, I'm assuming that they're also made into paste for flying, because mm -hmm. um, they're probably still young enough for that um, in 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 the worldview. But um, yeah, and then the like the final moment with like Black Philip, and then she says like because the, the the twins had said that sometimes this goat talks and he might be the devil, and then Thomason like I think half believing then goes and sits and talks to Black Philip, and then he responds to her, and then the devil manifests. <laughs> there were a lot of memes that came out when this film came out of Black Phillip going, do you want to live deliciously? Or, yes, I would like to live deliciously. You don't actually see Black Phillip talk. No, that was a good choice. <laughs> yeah. The From... devil manifests. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the devil is not the goat. No. <laughs> Just make that clear. Yeah. No the thing. devil is a guy dressed up like a seventh, 17th century noble, which yeah. again, from Central European accounts, mm-hmm. that's how the devil would appear. Mm-hmm. It's a guy in spurs and fancy clothing mm-hmm. trying to tempt you. But yeah, all, lots of good sy- symbols. You know what's funny is that the wolves are mentioned, but you do not see a wolf because there's not a wolf. Well, that problem. is um, accurate to reality. Yeah. It is very rare to just happen across a wolf in the wild. Yeah. They're pretty good at hiding themselves. Also, not responsible for anything that happens in this movie. Yeah, wolves get good PR in, in this movie. Mm-hmm. But hares, ravens, the black goat... Yeah, I'd say maybe don't bring a black goat to your farm. If you're well, I mean, it's... <laughs> black Philip is literally the black goat of the wood, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I learned a lot about the like influences on like H.P. Lovecraft from this because it, I, I don't know, I just had never really considered how saturated like a person, a twentieth or twenty first century person might be by this history in this growing up in that area. New um, England is a spooky place. Yeah. Um, did, I, I do want to want to say that just on, again, purely on the production level, the costuming was great. These looked like pretty close to handmade clothes. I think some of it was clearly machine stitched, but it did at least look like it would have like the fit. And they also looked comfortable, which I think is important because it's kind of like a lot of historical mo- movies the clothes don't look like the actors are actually like comfortable in them, but these look like clothes that you would wear and you could walk around and you got a big woolen thing to keep warm over other stuff and like and your shift and it's like it's fine, it's what you would wear at the time and it wouldn't have been awful to wear those things. So yeah. There is a great attention to detail, which is good again in such yeah. a small constricted movie. Yeah. It helps to get those details right. Eggert says that his background is in production design, and it shows. <laughs> I, I was going to say, it's it does more in a confined space with a limited cast mm-hmm. than just some sprawling epic movies even come close to achieving. I mean, this what? would work pretty well as a play. Like this yeah. would transpose to a stage very well. Like, and it would actually be very intense on on a stage. Yeah. Um, just because it's it's live, but it's not like you need anything really difficult with it. You'd have to change some things, like you know, there's the animal presence and stuff. But well, good. the animal would be just a guy in a black morph suit dancing around <laughs> holding a stuffed goat head. Probably, uh, but... No, I don't think so. I think you'd do something much cleverer than that. But yeah. What's really nice about this movie? Um, I looked this up. It had a budget of about four million dollars, and it raked in something like forty million. So I mean, massively profitable. Yay! I like it when good movies make yeah. money. Yeah, but um, <laughs> Hollywood unfortunately operates on a model where you throw as much money as you can at something in the in the expectation of returning even more money back. But having the limitations of a small budget forces certain creative choices mm-hmm. that work better. And, and there were cool things about like the fact that they were filming in like northern Ontario, and they were relatively isolated. I mean, they didn't all like partake in like calvinist beliefs and like are restrictive with each other outside of filming but that 
the cast and crew were like away and had to be together did kind of help foster the sort of mindset without getting too method as uh, innocent mm-hmm. says they're like they didn't stay in character the whole time that would be awful so i just want to point out for any international listeners um mm-hmm. if you look at a map of canada if you look at ontario there's this huge swath of it that's not northern ontario Northern Ontario is literally the north edge of Lake Superior. I don't get it either, but that's up north here. Uh, this this was pretty pretty remote, I think, because where they could afford to to film was remote. I loved also that there were little little symbolisms of like the egg that broke open and was like a bloody half formed chick, and the like blood coming out of the teat uh, from milking. These are all like those are all little witchcraft description things, and I was like, yeah, just love. I just love how he pumped in as much stuff as he could. Like you couldn't do a series with this because you just wouldn't have enough material. Really, he just sort of saturated it with everything that there was or is available. Super distilled, the opposite of homeopathy. Not every narrative needs to be long form. So So obviously, we love this movie. I think it is an ideal introduction to the topic. Of witchcraft trials, as opposed to anything else available. Back when, I guess, the Crucible from the 90s was the main mm-hmm. way people had engaged with this. Uh, I think The Witch, as a period piece, does a much better job of just getting in those details. Mm-hmm. And right. that you can follow if you wanted to do further research. Mm-hmm. There is a lot here. Well, I think uh, The Witch is one of the few narratives about this that's actually about this. Because, um, again, The Crucible is using witchcraft as a metaphor. It's not actually about witchcraft. Yeah. And, I th- and like, a lot of... I think, actually, people... In one of the interviews I watched, like, a lot of stuff that's about witchcraft at this time period is on the feminist piece. And this isn't really about that. Like, it's there. It has to be there, because that's an important consideration. But it's more about... You know, what is it like to be in an eschatological time? What's it like to mm-hmm. believe that there's demons and that the end of the world is nigh and there's witches and the devil and all this stuff? Guy Gabriel K made a claim that good historical fiction ref- makes it so that the characters believe what a historical character would believe. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of historical fiction takes not only a modern lens on something that happens in the past, but the characters to make them relatable Mm -hmm. think in a way that we do. And the witch is an example of that being implemented in film of that not being the case. And the movie also assuming you have the same mindset of the historical Mm -hmm. characters. I don't think I've seen that done before. Yeah. This movie does it brilliantly. Could, could you imagine if Thomason was like a sassy feminist out of place? It, just wouldn't, it wouldn't be any good. <laughs> Going to, um, I was talking about the low budget quality of the movie. Um, that's one of the great things about this is if this had been given a major Hollywood budget, it would never have been allowed to exist in its current form. Oh, the language. Because what he Especially did... Especially the language. The, yeah. the, the language, because uh, uh, Eggert says that he had took all these, like, excerpts, hodgepodge, uh, uh, like, uh, allegedly verbatim accounts. He has this big thing that he would say in his interviews about how actually the, this group was relatively literate. And would actually... Literate language was, like, the only art they would enjoy, because they're hardcore Calvinists, so art's not like a... You don't get to have a whole lot of fun. <laughs> and... Because he had to read the Bible in English, is what he says. And 
he's then he's like then you have all these accounts and like uh, stuff from the time period and so then he had the original script was just this sort of collage of like random 17th century things that he then slowly kind of massaged into like um the the characters but trying to maintain that kind of shakespearean language which i think also probably that was would have made a lot of teenagers real mad <laughs> in the in the theater because they, they, I don't think they would have been expecting that. I didn't find it that hard to understand though. No, not at all. Like it, I didn't think it was like difficult to comprehend. Well, I mean, you have all the gesture and like facial expression to figure out what they're saying. A common misconception because this is roughly this is set roughly contemporaneously to William Shakespeare. Uh, the common misconception is that Shakespeare was speaking, you know, old English or something like that. He's speaking the exact same language we are. They're just using it in a slightly older form. But it's not like that older form is incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds quaint and dated, but it's not like it sounds so foreign you can't understand it. Yeah, and the I mean, you can interest. still read Chaucer. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that, that's Middle English. Yeah. It was in the Vice interview, she was like, what was it like working in Old English? I'm like, they're not Vikings! <laughs> but yeah, I think we're running out of stuff to say on this, other than that we think this movie's great. I guess as our final question, wouldst thou live deliciously, Corey? <laughs> um, I'm going to go with yes. Wouldst thou live deliciously, Marie? Um, I already do, because I have other options, because I'm not a Calvinist. <laughs> That's the answer I should Well, I given. guess you're not going to sign my big book here, then. No. But should you wish to, I will help you because you don't actually know how to write, Thomason. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Wouldst thou live deliciously, Michael? I made that deal a long time ago, Marie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about this a while. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes and articles from me on onelastsketch.wordpress.com. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, whatever Google whatever calls itself now. The RSS feed is still in there somewhere. Where can the audience find you too, if anywhere? I do have a website, shrinkandexpand.com, where you can find my blog, yatropexy.wordpress.com. Um much easier to go through shrink, shrink and Expand, I think. If you like this episode, you might enjoy the one on the Satanic Panic, where we looked at the more modern 80s kind of version of this moral panic. And I can be found in those liminal spaces where you're not quite sure if you've seen me. Till next time! Bye! Bye! Bye. Bye.